1: have perhaps heard the phrase made man. In the terms of many folks, they see that as somebody who was successful, independent, perhaps pulled himself up by his own bootstraps. But in the parlance of Italian crime families, it takes on an entirely different meaning. A made man is a wise guy, sealed by blood covenant, a member of La Cosa Nostra. There was a period of time in the 1980s and 90s when my guest today was just such a man incredible life story takes him from being a member of the Colombo crime family to being a member of the family of God, from being a good fella to a Godfella. We're pleased to have with us today on the show, Michael Francese. Michael, welcome.
2: Thank you, Craig. Good to be here.
1: Let's get into the heart of your family. It is entirely unusual... For someone like yourself, who, during the course of your involvement in the Colombo crime family in New York in the 1980s and 90s, ultimately had five indictments, five trials, you spent seven years in jail, and yet here you are talking to me as opposed to taking a dirt nap. How is that even possible?
2: Well, Craig, that's always the the first question I'm asked because, uh, you know, people are shocked and surprised uh, because normally you don't walk away from that life, especially publicly, like I have, and and not enter a witness protection program or, uh, you know, or anything else. But, you know, I always say there's a a practical reason uh, for that, and and actually also, I should say, a spiritual reason. Practical reason is this. I mean, I spent 20 years in that life, uh, the last several at a very high level. I was a cop regime in in the Colombo family. So I knew intimately well the mentality of the guys. I knew the modus operandi. I knew what they would do, what they wouldn't do. So, you know, having that knowledge, I was able to, you know, counteract anything that they might do um, because there were really no surprises, and uh, I was very diligent in that. I didn't take anything for granted, and, um, you know, I I moved out of New York, and I was just very careful with my lifestyle. I stayed out of places I knew I shouldn't go. I didn't put a house in my name, no utilities. Um, I, I was very, very careful, and, you know, The FBI is, um, they're obligated if they hear things from their informants uh, that somebody's life in danger, whether they like you or not, they have to come and tell you. And and I got, uh, you know, a few of those calls. So I mean, that's the practical reason. And during all of that, uh, quite honestly, Craig, I just outlasted everybody, just about everybody I know is either dead or in prison for the rest of their lives. So I outlasted people in that regard. And of course the second reason and and really the the main reason for all of this is I believe God had a different plan and a purpose for my life He's made that very very clear to me over the last 15 years and the course that he's navigated for me so because I always say there's no blueprint uh, you know for walking away from that life and I, I can't say that I was extremely confident that I was uh, survived there was no cockiness or arrogance about it I just felt this is what I needed to do and and I was going for it. So,
1: Was it a given from the very start that you would enter into this life, given the fact that your your father, Sonny, was very high up within the Colombo family as well? Was this sort of the passing of the mantle?
2: You know, yeah, it wasn't originally intended that way. But, uh, you know, certainly when I got into the life, and I, I guess I could say I proved, you know, to be, uh, you know, to pretty be pretty capable. I mean, I was a good earner for the family, and I guess uh, they saw some leadership ability in me, and I was elevated to a high level. And uh, my father certainly was grooming me to take over the family because, you know, he had so many issues himself with a with a 50-year prison sentence and constantly being on parole. It was very, very hard for him. He was handcuffed, uh, you know, to take over leadership. So, uh, you know, they wanted to do it through me, and that's that's the place I was headed for, for sure, if I would have stayed in that life. Um, you know, I could have elevated to the top.
1: And you actually went pretty high up within the Colombo crime family, didn't you? I mean, there are allegations that at one point you were earning somewhere between 5 to $8 million a week in Vice. I mean, <laughs> Michael, that's better than most uh, companies on the Dow and NASDAQ. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you know, Craig, I was I was fortunate. I, I mean, I knew how to use that life to benefit me in business, and I had kind of a head for business. So I went into different uh, areas uh, that the families had prior, you know, had been into prior to my uh, being involved. And uh, you know, I mean, I I had uh, a big territory. I mean, really, Long Island uh, was all mine. I mean, I, I controlled that, and I controlled some places up and down the eastern seaboard. And uh, Brooklyn, I had a very big stronghold. I started to move out into California and do some things. So, you know, I I didn't set out saying, okay, I'm going to control all these territories. But just by virtue of the amount of money that I was bringing in and the amount of, uh, you know, men that I had under me, it was starting to become a a pretty formidable force in that life. So it just happened.
1: We think of many of the films down through the years. Uh, The Godfather in 1972, uh, Mario Puzo's book, uh, certainly The Goodfellas in the early 1990s. And I would imagine that you're asked frequently, how accurate are those depictions to the real lifestyle? Is that Hollywood glamour, or do those kinds of things really happen? I mean, are are guys getting killed on the streets because they're not uh, cooperating? Does that kind of stuff actually happen?
2: Well, it does. You know, unfortunately... uh you know, I, and I get asked this question, obviously, quite a bit about the movies and television shows. And, you know, to me, the greatest movie of all time about that life was The Godfather, you know, both one and two. And, and three, they kind of lost it a bit. But one and two were, you know, were great movies. I mean, uh, were they actual depictions of that life? No, because they were, they were basically fictional movies, but uh, done extremely well but go to goodfellas and donnie brasco and and they were pretty accurate portrayals of the life. I mean, I knew all those guys in, in in both of those movies and actually I was mentioned in goodfellas. But uh they were pretty accurate, you know. I mean, that's the street life and a lot of the things that they they captured the essence of that life in a great way and it's you know not a good thing, but unfortunately uh you know they were pretty realistic.
1: What was life for you like growing up as a kid? Your father, as we mentioned, Sonny, was an underboss and enforcer within the Colombo crime family. Um, you grew up in this atmosphere. Obviously, early on, you really didn't know much else other than the life of crime.
2: No, I didn't. I mean, I grew up in that uh, atmosphere. My dad originally didn't want this life for me, he wanted me to get an education, go on to school, be a professional. But I grew up in a different era. I grew up, uh, you know, when law enforcement tactics against organized crime were very different than they are today, because today everything is very covert. They got a lot of informants, a lot of high-tech surveillance equipment. You know, a guy can be under investigation and not really know about it. But my dad was extremely high profile. He was a major target back in the 60s when I was a kid. And at that time, uh, he was under constant surveillance by at least nine or ten different law enforcement agencies all over Brooklyn, New York, Long Island. And each one of these agents had a car parked around my house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, I mean, I grew up hating the police. I hated government. I hated law enforcement. My dad was my hero. And I looked at them as the enemy, trying to harass him and hurt our family. So I had several run-ins with them as a kid, and. And I just grew up, uh, you know, with a really distorted point of view with respect to the government and law enforcement. I hated them.
1: At the end of the day, though, in terms of your entrance and essentially following your father's footsteps, I mean, it was almost a, a fait accompli in the sense that um, uh, this was the life that you had known, that's the only life that you had ever known, and there's, there's a sense, I think, of, of being a man's man, particularly when when you look at the the code of honor within La Cosa Nostra. Uh, yes, there's there's some pretty vile, horrible things that take place, but at the same token, there's a tremendous sense of honor and respect, and uh, and family comes before all else.
2: You know there is, and it's uh, it's very attractive to you know somebody with the, those aspirations that wants to be a, a man. And you know I looked up to my father. I mean I thought he had real qualities of uh, of what a man's man should be. And I attributed that not only to him personally, but because he was a part of that life. So in in that regard, the life became attractive to me because, you know, my dad exuded power and, uh, you know, he had influence over men. I saw how he treated my mother. I saw how people respected him. And, you know, that's that's very appealing, especially to a young man. So... You know, and and you know, people ask me now, what do I miss about the life? You know, is it the money and the power and all that? And you know, honestly, Craig, I don't. You know, I'm I'm pretty well, you know, uh, uh, happy with my life now, and it's not anywhere near what that used to be. But, you know, just this brotherhood, this uh, this idea that you know you're with a group of men that you know have your back, which was a, a you know a dynamic statement on the street. You know, wherever you go, you had people around you, and uh, and it's just a it's just a major. You know, high when you know that you got this brotherhood of men. There's nothing more powerful than that, and uh, and that was very powerful to me. It was a big allure for me getting into the life.
1: And there's a huge piece of irony here too, though, isn't there, Michael? In the sense that, in spite of the fact that we're aware. Uh, largely from both film depiction as well as the news headlines, for that matter, uh, that the likes of an Al Capone back in Chicago in the 1920s or uh, a John Gotti in the 1970s and 80s, yes, committed some pretty horrible crimes, did some terrible things, and yet had a modicum of respect. It was always fascinating to see the way uh, the dapper Don Gotti would, would walk around town and people would salute him and wave to him, and, and there was th- there was a sense of respect in spite of the fact that he had this reputation why is that
2: well remember you know again this this power this uh this aura of power around you this this feeling that you just command respect is is uh is intriguing to people i mean you know understand this you know in our neighborhoods we we were gods i mean you know john took care of the people in his neighborhood and they looked up to him and they loved him and you know the same with my dad and the same with me in my neighborhood in brooklyn you I know mean, you know we took care of the neighborhood you know, we never had to worry about, you, you, you'd never worried about your daughter, your sister, your mother walking the streets at night. I mean, people wouldn't, wouldn't dare to, to come in and do anything that they shouldn't do. So within your base, so to speak, people really respected and loved you because we took care of our own. You know, and and uh, I think that's very attractive. And uh, you know, even in John's case. And you know, look, I knew John well. I don't, I don't think he was, the, you know, the best boss because he, he brought so much heat upon the family, which was not good at the time. But uh... you know, and he was a he was a different kind of guy. Socially, I got along with him very well, but business-wise, he was very very difficult to get along with. But But, uh, you know, it's, it's that sense of power. It's that sense of respect. I mean, it's, it's intriguing to people and it is attractive. You know, and I see it now in my own life. I'm not part of that life anymore, but I speak to these young kids and these gangbangers and they look up to me like, uh, you know, it's almost hero worship. And uh, that's something that I have to break through when I speak to them and try to, you know, get them to think properly and and make the, the proper choices in their life. But, uh, You know, and the media is largely responsible for that. I mean, you you know, there's a lot of reasons why people look up to guys like that.
1: With me today is a former New York Mafia crime member, Michael Francesi. His life is the subject of a new film called simply God the Father. More information on the web at godthefathermovie.com. We'll take a brief time out come back to more of our conversation with Michael Francesi as this edition of Lifeline continues. Welcome back to Lifeline. On this edition, a very special guest, a very rare opportunity. You see it so often depicted in films, folks that are familiar with movies like uh, The Goodfellas or The Godfather, aware of the allure of uh, the Italian crime syndicate, the mafia. You sometimes wonder, how real is all of this? Well, with me today is Michael Franzese, who is a real depiction of a real crime member who went up through the ranks having taken a blood oath. And it's ironic if you take a couple of steps back, Michael, and look at your life and realize that you got into the worst part of your life because of a blood covenant, but at the end you were able to escape that life of crime and take on an entire new life because of a very different type of blood covenant. Let's talk a bit about what happened to you, how that you finally were, um, after quite a number of indictments, um, given a sentence, you spent seven years in jail. What happened?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, as a result of, uh, you know, meeting a young woman, a young woman of faith, who is now my wife of 29 years, um, I made a decision uh, to try to walk away from that life and and uh, marry her and, and try to raise her family under some better conditions than, you know, my family had been under.
1: Did Cammie know who you were and what you were into when you first met?
2: You know, Craig, she really didn't. I mean, my wife was a a young girl from Anaheim, California. She had no involvement whatsoever with uh, that lifestyle. You know, out in Anaheim, there's really no mob presence, and she was a dancer. Uh, You know, she was a young uh, Latin girl, so she she really didn't know anything. I mean, she saw The Godfather once, but for her, that was a movie. It was a fictional movie, and she never, you know, associated that with any real-life person. And, um, you know, me coming from New York... I was the producer of the film you know and and she looked at me that way and she never gave thought to anything else and um you know people sometimes don't don't really understand that but you know not everybody i mean i've learned that from traveling across the country not everybody really even knows that the mob exists they only know it from the media but so she didn't know it and um you know but when i fell in love with her and i realized that she was a strong person of faith and that my life would never mix with hers I made the decision to try to walk away, and of course, you know, I had, I had been totally engrossed in the life, I mean, I've had four indictments up to that point, uh, you know, I knew the life intimately well, and I also knew that things were starting to cave in, because Giuliani started to use the racketeering laws very effectively, and I had just escaped a major indictment with uh, Giuliani, that had I been convicted, I would have gone away forever. So, I mean, I, you know, I kind of saw the handwriting on the wall,
1: so you knew that the the walls, as you say, were kind of collapsing in on you. At the point at which you made the decision, I, I need to I need to consider something different here. Uh, that, that's not an easy thing to do because, uh, as a member of uh, La Cosa Nostra, you take a blood oath that once you get in, the only way you get out is through a body bag. How, how this could not have been a very light decision for you, realizing that not only on one hand were you facing the possibility of doing significant amount of time in jail through, you know, perhaps one of any of the indictments that that Giuliani was chasing you after, but even if you were capable of escaping significant jail time, there was the issue of how do you just pack up and leave and say, that's it, guys, I'm done, I'm walking out of this life. That's not so easily done, is it?
2: No, well, understand, you know, I, w- I want to be clear on this. There's no uh, heroism in this for me. I-, I tried to backdoor this. And what I mean by this is that, you know, I had a plan after beating all those four indictments uh, because I became such a major, major target. Every year they were indicting me again. And so the feds in the Eastern District of New York, Brooklyn, indicted me uh, on this major uh, racketeering case again. And uh, my plan was to take a plea, do a few years in prison. I was under the old law, not the new law today, where there's no more parole. I thought I'd do a few years in prison. I had leverage because I had beat them so many times. They wanted to get a conviction on me. Uh, I was uh, had the ability to pay them a huge fine, and I said, "Listen, I'll, I'll take a plea. I'll do a couple of years in prison. I'll marry Camille. I'll move out to the West Coast. When I get out of prison, I'll have parole and probation." And you're restricted. You're not allowed to meet with uh, anybody that has a felony conviction or is alleged to be an organized crime. So I figured I can use that as an excuse. Stay out on the west coast, and maybe after 10 or 12 years, they'll just kind of forget about me. I never uh, planned at that point to renounce my oath and make a big deal that I was walking away. I just was kind of quietly waiting, hoping that uh, you know enough of my own guys would have their own problems. They just forget about me. So there was no heroism in that. I wasn't being a, doing a heroic thing by walking away from a bad life. I want to make that clear. You know, it wasn't until I was put into a, a circumstance, you know, put into a situation where I had to make a decision whether to renounce my life or not. And at that point, uh, I did. And it was a it was a heavy decision, uh, Craig. I I labored over it, and I, I you know because uh, look, I was going against who I was. I was going against a blood oath that I took. I was going against. Uh, you know my father um, you know and it was very very difficult I man I'd go to sleep at night you know walking away I'd wake up staying in. I really labored over it it was it was tremendously uh, difficult for me.
1: was your dad still alive at this time?
2: Yeah, my dad's still alive now so he he was there throughout all of this and um, you know when I when it did become public that I was walking away and again, I didn't make an announcement, hey, I'm walking away. It just happened to become very public because I was high profile. And, you know, Life Magazine wrote it up. It shot back to New York like a rocket. I was in jail at the time. And, you know, all heck broke loose at that point. My, my boss, uh, Carmine Persico, he put an immediate contract on my life. And, and, unfortunately, my father had to go along with it because when you propose somebody into that lifestyle, if they go bad, so to speak, you're responsible for them. So my father had to go along with it. And, uh, you know, because everybody thought if I was renouncing the life that I was going to cooperate and become a witness. That's the normal thing that people do when they when they renounce the life. Uh, but I never intended to do that, but uh, nobody believed me, and there's a lot of reasons why they didn't believe me, because there was a lot of stuff going on. You know, the FBI was putting a tremendous amount of pressure on me, <clears throat> you know, they told me that, uh, you know, there's contracts all over the place, I'm a dead man, they were getting word from their informants, they had to put me in the witness protection program. They locked me down in prison. They, they gave everybody all the signs that I was cooperating. And so uh, nobody believed that I wouldn't. Um, and so I had, a, I had a lot of trouble, <laughs> putting it mildly.
1: Well, what was your dad's reaction to all of this? I mean, you had followed in his, in his footsteps. Clearly, as you mentioned from the get-go, Michael, he didn't want you to follow in the life. And once you did, you're, you're in. There had to have been a sit-down conversation at some point in where he told you, Michael, you can't do this.
2: You know, he didn't, uh, because I was in jail when this all came out, and then he went back into prison on a on a parole violation, because he had been out on parole. So uh, he sent messages to me, like, what are you doing? You know, and uh, I sent messages back, I'm not going to hurt anybody. That's all I told him. I never said that I was not walking away, but I said, I'm not going to hurt anybody. Don't believe what you're hearing. And I think that he... He took that to, uh, I, I think he believed that. He took that to heart. Um, but again, he, he didn't know the extent of what I was doing. So it, it was difficult because it was hard to communicate when we're both in prison. I mean, that was that's rough. But, uh, you know, he was very upset. I mean, he, he let it be known that he was very upset. And I actually had an encounter in prison with somebody that had left him in another prison. And... Um, you know, it told me my dad's feelings, and it was ugly because I got very upset with the guy in the prison. We almost had a major altercation, but uh, you know, it was calmed down after that. But you know, this this the bottom line. This was a lot of trouble for me, a lot of trouble.
1: In that jail cell, you were sentenced and served seven years. You had a lot of time to think. You had relationship with Cammy, who you mentioned was a strong believer. Um, you have reached a pivot point within your life. You've made the decision to walk out of the life of crime, but then the question comes down to walk out of and into what? At what point did you begin seriously exploring the claims of Christ?
2: Well, again, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do and how I was going to overcome this once I got out of prison. Um, But what happened is I got out after five years, um, because I had a 10-year sentence. I I got out after five, and that was just about the maximum at that time that I could have served. I was on parole for 13 months, and it was, without a doubt, the worst time of my life. I mean, basically dodging bullets, Um, I I couldn't, it was hard for me to earn a living. The feds were putting so much pressure on me to become a witness, and uh, it was just, it was bad. It was really tough for for me and my wife. I mean, that poor girl, every time I walked out of the house, she was afraid I was going to get killed because the FBI had put it in her mind that, uh, you know, I was in a lot of trouble because they were trying to pressure her into getting me to, you know, cooperate also. So... It was rough, and after 13 months, um, they had enough of, of my dance with them, so to speak. And I violated my parole. They uh, they put me back in a the cell. They they took all my assets, money. They said they were going to indict me on another racketeering case. And and um, long story short, they threw me in that cell that night. And uh, it was without a doubt, Craig, the worst night of my life. It was it was the only time in my life that I have ever ever experienced hopelessness, which I will is probably the worst emotion that anybody can ever feel. I mean, it comes along with grief, but it's just, you know, there's no way out of a horrible situation that you're in. You feel like you're going to lose everything that was dear to you, my wife, my kids, my freedom, everything. And it was, it was a tough night. And, uh, you know, it was that night that uh, I've told the story so many times uh, that a prison guard, you know, slipped the Bible through my, uh, the slot in my door. I was in the hole. Because he looked at me and he he thought I needed some help, um, and um, you know I must have I must have looked that way. I don't know because I was laying on the cot, but uh, you know and it was that night that I started my encounter with Jesus. Now I, I had been introduced to him through my wife and my mother-in-law. I had even accepted him, but I accepted Jesus then uh, the same way I would go to confession as a Catholic. Oh, forgive my sins, great, and I'll move on. There was no surrender to him. There was no relationship with him. It was really self-serving when I when I first came to him as a Christian and and not as a Catholic. So, but it was that night um, that I had my first encounter, and and it went on for 29 months and seven days. They kept me locked in that hole, and uh, that was when uh, my faith became uh, as solid as it could be during that time. Because uh, I can't even begin to tell you how many times, how often I read my Bible, how thoroughly I read it. I had several books sent in, not only on Christianity, but on every faith, because, you know, I I really wanted to be sure. I mean, I had made a couple of bad decisions in my life, and if eternity was real, I wanted to know if Christianity was really the way to go. I mean, there's a lot of other faiths you can cling to. And so I had my wife send me in books on Mormonism and Judaism and uh, Buddhism and every other faith, because I had nothing but time on my hands, 24-7, you're locked in a six-by-eight cell, there's not much to do, and I really did a, a, a thorough search, and I just came away, you know, that the, the evidence was, uh, was irrefutable to me, that uh, the Bible is God's word, and that Jesus is my Savior, and, and uh, I came out of there believing that with all my heart, not knowing where it was going to take me. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea, how I was going to survive, or what job I was going to get, or what my future was going to be. I had no idea. And, uh, you know, things started from there. God's plan, I think, started uh, on my outside life from that point.
1: With us today is Michael Francesi. His life depicted in a new film. The new film is called God the Father. We'll come back to more of our conversation with Michael Francesi as this edition of Lifeline continues. Welcome back to our conversation. Information about this new film, you'll find it online at godthefathermovie.com. That is godthefathermovie.com. This new film depicts the life of Michael Francesi, our guest today, who went from being involved in the Colombo crime family in the 1980s and 90s, essentially having been brought into that lifestyle through a blood covenant, and then, most ironically, following, Michael, your prison time, the diligence that you engaged in in seeking out the claims of Christ. Um, You mentioned before the break how that you studied a number of other world religions because this was a decision that you really wanted to put your whole confidence in. And and having finally arrived at the decision that the claims of Christ were in fact real and true and could be real and true for you, Um, irony here that you began your life of crime with a blood covenant and yet it was another type of blood covenant that eventually rescued you from that life?
2: You know, it is ironic, and I, I've learned something now as a Christian, you know, and, and, and hopefully a knowledgeable Christian, at least in, uh, you know, in the way I've, I've approached it, is that, you know, the enemy does exist, and, and I believe that he has two functions on this earth, and one of them is to separate us from God, and he separates us, you know, mentally, emotionally, um, in so many ways. And the other is to mock God. And I, I always say this, that the, the mob life, um, the street life, the gang life, they're evil lives. I'm not calling the guys involved evil, because I was one of them, and uh, I just happen to be blessed, but I was in the same category as them. I'm blessed, and maybe if they had the opportunity, uh, they would arrive at the same conclusions that I did, but uh, some of them haven't been led that way. I don't know. I can't speak for them, but the life is evil because I don't know one family of any member of that life that hasn't been totally devastated. And I mean devastated. I don't mean hurt. You know, my own family, not my wife and kids, praise God, but my mother, 33 years without a husband because my dad did all that jail time. Uh, She died, you know, two years ago of cancer. Uh, my sister died of an overdose of drugs uh, at the age of 27. My brother, a drug addict for 25 years, is now in the witness protection program. My younger sister died, yet very young, of cancer. It goes on and on and on, and every family of everybody I know that was involved in that life is suffering similar consequences, different circumstances, similar consequences. And when the enemy uses, you know, a blood oath, I mean, I took a blood oath, Okay, and when I was brought into the life, you know, the boss of my family said, "Tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life into la cosa nostra, this thing of ours." You know, that's the word he used. That's the terminology he used. That's the first time I ever heard that. When I was born again into an evil criminal lifestyle, and you know, and and the enemy used that, I believe, to mock our God. And you know, I've seen that clearly. And I'm not just fantasizing and making this up. I mean, I'm. Look, I'm a very practical guy. You know, Craig, I say this all the time. I grew up on the street. You're not selling me the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, you got to prove things to me. Evidence has been a major part of my life. When I say things, it's, it's built on research and reason, and I hope what's, you know, common sense I have. And I believe this. I, I believe it with all my heart. And, you know, when I'm out there talking about God, I want to make this clear, too. You know, I don't believe it's my job to convert anybody. I can't convert anybody. That's the Holy Spirit's job, but we were given a command, and that command was to go and preach the good word to all of creation, and what I do, I just tell my story. I tell people, I'm not trying to impose my faith on you, and I'm try- not trying to turn you into a Christian. I'm telling you what happened to me, and 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 my life, you can look at it. It's an open book. I mean, I'm all, I'm all over the place. The fact that I'm here, you may want to give, you know, serious thought as to why I'm here and listen to the story. And then it's up to you to make decisions. But, you know, I believe it with all my heart. And, and I want to say this because I think it's important. You know, what attracted me to Christianity initially was the manhood and the character of Jesus. When I came to him, you know, before I would believe in him, knowing that he was a man, I wanted to see what kind of man he was because, you know, Being a man's man meant everything to me. That's all I heard from the time I was five years old and throughout my my experience in that life. So knowing that Jesus was a man, I, I wanted to separate his manhood from his deity and just really look at his character as a man. And I'll say this, you know, and I'll shout it from the rooftops. There was no greater man that ever walked the face of the earth in every category of his character. I mean, he was the perfect man. And that's irrefutable. As it's recorded in the Bible, you can't refute the fact that he was perfect in every way. And and that's a high standard. I mean, that's a standard that anybody should want to emulate. I don't care what faith you are. You know, you want to be the perfect man, you emulate Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth. That's it. So, I mean, there was a lot of things that led me, you know, to be attracted to, to Jesus. And, and that's what I talk about. And that's what I want people to know. And then it's up to them to make decisions, uh, you know, with their own life and where they're going and so on and so forth.
1: You have shared your story. Michael, in your autobiography, Blood Covenant. Um, you have also have another book out recently, I'll Make You an Offer You Can't Refuse. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's talk about the decision to take your story to the big screen. How hard of a decision was this to now go from having written your story down to now seeing it depicted on the big screen?
2: Well, it, it was tough because I had refused to do, uh, you know, I've always had people come to me, want to make a movie on your life. You know, Hollywood is a funny place, uh, Craig. You know, one day, uh, you got 20 producers calling you and all the media, and they want to do something about you. The next day, nobody knows you, and that's just the way it goes. They go on to the next thing. So I've had those episodes throughout my life where all of a sudden, everybody wants to do a movie, and, you know, they want to make another Donnie Brasco, another Goodfellas, and I I wasn't into that. I just didn't want to do that. They don't really want to talk about my faith, and I said, look, if you're going to tell a story, you tell the whole story, and we're not telling, if you want to make a mob movie, there's a lot of other characters out there that is interesting or more interesting than me but uh so we, were, we we let it go, but this opportunity came up um, because um, it, well I don't want to go through all the backstop because it's 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 a lot involved in it, but I had really the opportunity to tell my story in a very unique way, and this is a combination uh, documentary feature film in that it is true to life it's uh everything in there is irrefutable it it all happened. We we do this combining, you know, five different elements in this film to tell a story in a very unique way. And, uh, you know, we had a chance uh, to very dramatically let people see where God has brought me in in, in my life and uh, the impact and the influence that he's had on me. And, um, and I'm very, very happy about it. People are really being powerfully moved by the movie. And uh, that's the reason why I did it. I look at it as an extension of this ministry that God blessed me with. You know, I'll tell you a quick thing, Craig. Many, many years ago, uh, my mother-in-law, God rest her soul, she passed away. But very strong woman of God, had a very powerful influence on me. I was sitting at a table with her and Cammie. Uh, I had not been a Christian at that point. We only knew each other a few months. And she looked at me and she said, you know, one day I believe you're going to be, uh, you know, talking about God uh, to thousands, maybe millions of people, Michael.
1: And I looked at her like, you know, she's crazy. She's
2: she's nuts. And my wife at that time, she wasn't my wife yet, but she looked at her mother, Cammy, and said, you know, please don't scare him away. I'm hoping I get him to church on Sunday, you know, one one time. So it was funny. But, you know, uh, this woman's prophecy, uh, you know, I've spoken to God knows how many people all over this country. And now I've been called to uh, Singapore and Malaysia and, and, and outside of our borders. And this film, I think, is a fulfillment of a prophecy because, obviously, I can't be everywhere that a movie can be. And, uh, you know, it, it struck me. Um, when we started to to get into this, I said, wow, this could be a fulfillment of, of the strongest woman of God that I've ever met in my life.
1: And, and such irony uh, in the way God works in his economy, that you have gone from being uh, such an integral part of the underworld for a significant portion of your, uh, your youth, um, uh, kind of hidden in the shadows, so to speak, to now being very out in a very public and open way in sharing your story and the manner in which God can use this amazing story to impact lives. And, of course, that impact continues now with this new feature film called God the Father. You'll find it on the web at godthefathermovie.com. That's godthefathermovie.com. If you've just joined us on this special edition of Lifeline, we are talking with former mob member Michael Francesi. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. Welcome back to Lifeline. If you've tuned in a bit late, boy, you've uh, missed quite the treat as we are visiting today with Michael Francesi. Michael was a mob member for many, many years, part of the Colombo crime family in New York City. And he um, miraculously stepped away from that life following a 10 year in jail. He had an experience, an encounter with Jesus Christ that has radically changed his life. His story is featured in the autobiography, Blood Covenant, and now in a new film called God the Father. This movie, by the way, opening at theaters across the country, including here in the Bay Area at Grand Lake Theater in Oakland. And you can get more details on the web at godthefathermovie.com. Michael, let's talk a bit about the influence that your story has had across the nation uh, you mentioned earlier certainly capturing the attention of uh, junior mobsters. These are, these are kids that are maybe involved with a street gang, and they uh, find uh, the lifestyle to be very attractive and uh, the desire to not only have the power, the money, the control, and all of that. And, of course, the amazing way in which you've influenced the lives of so many of these young kids. But I'm, I'm curious. Uh, there's another question in terms of the influence of your story. Have you ever heard from any of the old crew? Has there ever been any feedback about uh, your story, the books, the traveling, the speaking, and, and now the movie?
2: You know, I have, Craig, and yeah, yeah I'm transparent in that regard. There's, there's no problem. You know, I, you know, people have asked me if you ever. I've got asked this last night. We had a, a huge Q and A after one of the showings, and they, uh, you know, have you ever had the opportunity to minister to any of your old associates? And I said, listen. You know, it wouldn't be wise for me to to have a Bible under my arm and go into a social club in Brooklyn and say, Hey, guys, I want to read the Word. I mean, I probably wouldn't get out of there, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I always tell you, though, God that God doesn't tell you to be stupid. You know, you got to use your head in these things. But um, I, I did have an opportunity. I was speaking at a church in New Jersey, and I had refused to go to New York for about 10 years because it just wasn't good. But God put it in my heart to go to this church. And uh, just prior to the service, I was... Um, I was over by the book table speaking with somebody, and I saw three guys walk in from my former life, Mm. and Craig, I tell you, it was like, you know, it was like I slipped right back into my past, because I saw them, and it's amazing how this can happen. I saw them, and my immediate reaction was I walked right up to them, and I said, hey, guys, and we shook hands. I said, what are you guys doing here? And they said, well, we're here to see you. And I said, well, what do you want to see me about? I mean, that whole attitude just changed in me. I didn't even realize it. And I was like back to where I was 20 years ago. And they said, no, we came to see you here at church. And then, you know, a minute after that, their wives walked in. So now I knew, well, maybe maybe they did come here for that reason. And uh, I went up on the stage. I, I did my thing, shared my faith. And I don't always give an altar call, but for some reason I was moved to do it that day. And they were sitting right to my left in the second row, three guys and their wives. And uh, they answered the altar call. Mm. And, uh, you know, it it was amazing because they had their heads down. They couldn't look up. Uh, One of their wives or two of them, I forget, were crying. They had tears in their eyes. And when I was finished, I came down and I went to shake their hands. And they shook their hands, but they never were able to look me in the eye. And, uh, you know, I don't know what happened. I mean, i never seen them again after that. um, But I think the Holy Spirit moved in them that day. I really do. And uh, that's the only encounter that I've ever had, you know, on a positive note. I mean, I've had word back that, you know, people are very unhappy with what I did. And I'm sure that I'm going to get some controversy, uh, you know, and some words back after this movie comes out. But my thing was never to put anybody in trouble. And it, the movie doesn't do that, and, but it does expose the life for what it is. And people should know that.
1: The new film God the Father details on the web at godthefathermovie.com. dot com. That's godthefathermovie.com. dot com. Final word about your latest book, Michael. I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. Now that that sounds like typical mob <laughs> parlance, but so what's this book about?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I never, uh, I never choose the titles. It's always uh, the publisher or someone else. But uh, I guess it works in this regard. You know, they asked me to write a business book and. Um, You know, because I asked all the time, you know, is, you know, where did you get your business acumen from? It's the same doing business legally as it is illegally. And I said, you know, I learned a lot on the street. And yeah, it, it, it helped me a lot in business, um, you know, in a legitimate way. And so they asked me to write a book about it, you know, and the book is really a contrast with two ways of doing business. On the street, you know, when you're, you're a member of that life, your patron saint, so to speak, is Machiavelli. I mean, he wrote a book called The Prince. He was an Italian statesman in the 1600s and, a, you know, a philosopher. And it's almost required reading when you go to prison to read Machiavelli. And, you, you know, we adopted many of his principles. And, um, you know, one of the principles of Machiavelli that I never forgot is this. In advising a prince how to maintain control of his kingdom, he said, this is what you need to do. You can lie, you can steal, you can cheat, you can do whatever it takes to maintain control of your kingdom. However, to the outside world, you must always, uh, you know, maintain an aura of dignity, you must always appear upright, and you must always appear honest. And that's kind of the way. The end justifies the means. On the street, you can do anything you need to do to maintain control and to do business. You know, when I started to look at, uh, read Proverbs and Solomon, I was blown away by the wisdom of Solomon. And so basically the book is a contrast in doing business at the street way, the Machiavellian way, and the way that Solomon would advise us to be in our business life. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's been very insightful. I've gotten a lot of good feedback from people in business. And it, you know, talks about ethics and so on and so forth. And I think, uh, you know, the art of negotiation that I learned on the street. Let me tell you, you're sitting down and negotiating with, you know, John Gotti or guys like that. You better be on top of your game because the consequences are serious if you lose. Yeah, it yeah, so.
1: certainly gives a whole new f- uh, meaning to the phrase, he who blinks first loses. <laughs>
2: exactly, exactly. So, you know, you learn a lot that way, and you bring it into the, re- the real world, I should say, the world of business, and it's it's been very helpful to
1: me. So That book, by the way, available through uh, Thomas Nelson Publishers, and you can get it online as well as through Amazon.com. The film God the Father... Details on the web at godthefathermovie.com. That's godthefathermovie.com. Michael Frances, thanks so much for the time. It's great to visit with you again, and I uh, hope you see you here back in the Bay Area real soon.